Film snobs like Joe and I like to talk a lot of game about auteur theory. Simply put, it's a fancy term for naming the director of a film as the true author of the film rather than the screenwriter. I like directors. I like finding the stylistic union of their films, but I wouldn't die on that theoretical sword. The biggest problem with auteur theory, though, is its champions who spend most of their time proclaiming the greatness of the same 20 directors. In other words, its proponents often guard the gates of who is allowed within. However, any director who has made two or more films can be viewed as an auteur. It's usually the smaller directors that are more intriguing to explore instead of kicking the same prize horses over and over again. So Joe and I are going to dig into the life and works of George Armitage, who directed the cinematic inspiration for this podcast. Attempting to piece together anything more than the basics of Armitage's life is a feat. I read some pieces on singular films, a couple of lengthy interviews, and a general biographical information that I acquired from typical sources one would search out. Most of his biography concerns his film career. What we do know is that he was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and his mother was a writer who wanted to get into film. So at the age of 13, they moved to Beverly Hills. He was wooed by the hot rod studded youth culture that was non-existent in Connecticut. He went to UCLA and majored in economics and political science and aimed to get his real estate license. However, in the process, he got his introduction to Hollywood by working in the Fox mailroom for 50-some-odd dollars a week and started to write his first screenplay in the mailroom. Being a lover of film from an early age, it would be a short time before he got his foot in the door. He got to start writing episodes and being a showrunner for Peyton's Place. This is where he came to know Roger Corman, who was making movies right and left, damn the consequences. Since TV was keeping the studio alive, the TV guys would give shit to the film guys, and George wasn't all about that, so he went over to befriend Corman, and thus the auteur of Gross Point Blank was created. What makes exploration of Armitage's filmography so compelling is the far-reaching diversity of his genres. His first film was a sexploitation piece given to him by Corman. His next was blaxploitation, and then there was the meta-commentary on blaxploitation that he wrote. Dark Strutters. His two most well-known pieces were comedies about relationships melded in the midst of violence involving social outsiders. His last film to date was an Elmore Leonard adaptation that was destroyed in the industry machinery. All in all, he's directed seven movies in 40-ish years. Joe and I will decide if the lengthy periods in between them is a sign of genius or something wholly other. So join us as we try to fill in some holes in the life of George Armitage before we take on his films one by one and try to figure out why George Armitage may be the greatest auteur to ever live. Take it from us, your favorite film snobs. We should know, and you should conform. Welcome, everybody, to So Gross, Such Point, Much Blank, the only gross point blank podcast. I still haven't checked up on that claim. Maybe next time. <laughs> I'm one of your hosts, Blake Collier, and with me is the insatiable Joe George. Insatiable? Yes. Oh, man. Just wait. Oh, man. Okay. 
we're not too private duty nurses yet, so <laughs> I'm not, I, can't, I can't own that phrase. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Today, we will be trying to put some meat on the bone of director George Armitage's biography. It's about as white boy granola as they get. But surely, there's some interesting tidbits we discovered in its midst. How are you feeling today, Joe? I, I am... I'm going to need an 11-year break before I can answer that question. <laughs> no doubt I'm going to start that. out, we're knocking out a couple answers, and then just disappear for 11 years. And... <laughs> uh, well, I'm guessing the uh, the first answer you're going to give is, is going to be in the realm of sexploitation, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, of course. And then I'm going to go to blaxploitation, and then I'm going to try to not offend you too much with the exploitation. Yeah, I'm going to do a southern accent, or so sorry. Yeah. And then uh, and then I'm going to turn on some 50s hits. Yeah. and. <laughs> 50s hits oh gosh i can't wait till we get to that one. Oh really oh i like oh, no, that one no no, right. no 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 I, I i enjoy it okay but i wouldn't necessarily say it's a movie so it, okay uh, i can't <laughs> we'll, we'll get there we'll yeah, get there we'll get there <laughs> so first off i feel like you and i've read pretty much the same information for yep. george armitage what is your reading of his life is it, is it really just as white bully granola as, as I said, or or did you find some stuff in there that, that you found to be unusual? No, 100% white boy granola. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that as a knock because I am as well. I, um, yeah, same here. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I wonder if that's part of his attraction to um, – you, you were right to say that all of his movies, at least the first few – they, they, they bounce from genre to genre, but there's definitely an appeal to criminals and crime and underworld behind all of them. And so I wonder if it's a little bit of the, uh, you know, suburban kid wants to see the excitement. The old uh, Tom Sawyer is excited about what Huck Finn is doing because Huck lives the I think it's a little bit white boy granola. But I I don't necessarily say that as a as as a pejorative. It's yeah. part of what makes him interested in what he's interested in. It, now it does raise the question about how successful he is yes. um, with 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 dealing with the the criminal stuff. But what do you think? Is it so? Is it possible that that George Armitage, because he grew up in the kind of the suburbs and and is just your typical white boy, um, is it possible that what he's doing is ultimately what white people do in general, where they they just go uh, take a vacation in other <laughs> urban areas, or it's it's tourism, it's film tourism. You know, see see how many yeah. genres I can get under my belt that have nothing to do with me. I'm not sure. I'm not female. I'm not black. <laughs> I'm not a hick. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it, it it is interesting that that. It does feel like he he fits the mold for, yeah, I would say a lot of your kind of lesser known obscure white directors that yeah. uh, got a few hits you know along the way, but but he's just flexing his his muscle and, and trying to find different ways to dig into the curiosities that he finds in these stories. Yeah, um, and in and in supposedly different cultures. That's the yeah, and and we'll, like you said, we'll we'll get into more of that as we as we take on each film. But you know, I I found something fascinating is that it seems like oh, he's really infatuated with this this understanding of outsider. You know, someone yeah. who doesn't quite fit in. Although I would say, and we'll get to it a little bit more in depth next month, is that Private Duty Nurses may be the only film that doesn't quite fit within the scope of how so so I mean, we don't gotta get yeah, all the way into yeah, it yeah, now yeah. but i'm trying to find the character like i guess you could say that private duty nurses themselves are somewhat outsiders mm -hmm. 
but it feels like the only one that's truly an outsider is is the black nurse um yeah but even then it's it's so it's so obscured by the 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 genre tropes that it doesn't actually feel all that interesting like whereas all the rest of his films for whatever great elements or bad elements they may have yeah there's a very distinct flavor that runs through that i just found missing in private duty nurses huh see i see it there in private duty nurses i i yeah um you know you've got uh, domino the the vietnam vet uh, who's got the ptsd and he's kind Mm -hmm. of uh, he's kind of, it, it's with the male characters yes. and we'll get more into that later on but I, I find all the all the male characters i mean we even get the scene where um shoot i've lost his name now where uh the the one that's in the drug plot uh ruffles the feathers of the locals and you know mm-hmm. the local guy comes and threatens him a little bit so it, I, I agree that it's not quite as pronounced but i think it's i think it's there through all of them i i, I think that's consistent with them all we'll battle it out next time then let, let me add this to it though yeah. another important part of uh armitage's tourist style uh harry chest the man mm-hmm. has lots of okay. we got christopherson we got alec baldwin we've got a uh, every all the male characters in the in the sex scenes i can't remember if bernie casey uh uh shows up a harry chest at one point but i think he and john cusack both are are not as hairy as as his other protagonists yeah but but you're right i, I think that is a <laughs> there's a obscured or kind of lost machismo that's kind I, of buried in in all you know there there is and it's weird that then i think you're right that cusack and um and casey are the two that don't even though they're kind of the more well i guess the big bounce characters are overtly masculine but uh never mind i'm gonna kill my theory as i'm talking (laughs) it's just it's interesting that those two who are overtly masculine don't play that way um and 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 i kind of think that's i think it's a lot of why uh gross point blank is his strongest film Mm -hmm. i think we're probably both on the same page with that yeah um is that cusack is subverting a lot of those masculinity he tropes. He's very aware of them. And I, and I think that's part of what makes that movie work so well is Armitage understands all these tropes because of the, the lessons he's learned before. Yeah. Um, I don't find any of his movies, I, I don't, with the exception of the first one, I don't think any of them are outright bad, not to skip ahead too much. Yeah. Um, but I don't find any of them nearly as strong as uh, GPB. And I think part of it is because he's been building up that, that intelligence of this, the, the the genre films enough to kind of let Cusack's character stand outside of them and comment on them even while he's within them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it, it's, it, I think it's easy to see that like the upside to what may be film tourism for him mm-hmm. is that he's, he's been in those atmospheres for so long that he gets yeah. them. Like he understands what the, he understands the basic outline of a black exploitation film. They all yes. pretty much, run along the same storylines the same yeah. kind of tropes the same cliches yeah the same thing with sexploitation i've seen a few yep. of them in my day as a, <laughs> as a horror fan you almost have to find yourself yep. in some cult films occasionally and so he knows the tropes well enough to where once miami blues hits he's able to start kind of dismantling um, yeah because i wouldn't say either one of those are uh really exploitation of any sort they're straightforward film narrative that has something significant to say um whereas everything before that was some form of exploitation yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so uh and then we just don't know what big bounce is (laughs) it's it's just kind of there (laughs) so it's yeah (laughs) 
so that that may be the funnest uh, episode is, <laughs> is when we finish off his uh, his filmography but yeah it's he he's he's fascinating in that he seems very much to be the type of person who just doesn't see the point of having his private life out there and yep. and I admire that to some extent. Sure. I, I think in this day and age of, of celebrity and social media and, and all this stuff, it's it's easy to get lost uh, yeah. in your own persona, even more so than like say Alice Cooper or Marilyn Manson back in the day. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you know, the big question for a lot of you know people was like, well, are you sure they're mentally okay, or are they like <laughs> like what's going on there? And they're just yeah. playing parts. But yeah, I think that's that's been crossed over at this point with celebrity is that they're feeding into their persona and they've become their persona. Whereas I think Armitage for whatever reason, I mean, I think there are probably plenty of reasons why he's not a name per se, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't see the, like he doesn't see how his life affects any of his work. Yeah. Um, It does. And I'm sure we'll kind of speculate on, on what, what parts might have been impacted his work, but but I I, I I appreciate the the director who is willing to just be obscure and yeah. and make a film every so often and then call it good. So, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm just thinking like his mother was a writer mm-hmm. who wanted to do films. Mm-hmm. They lived in Connecticut, moved to L.A. What do you think happened when when he first arrived in L.A.? <laughs> I'm curious about this. I think the first thing that happened was maybe not the first thing, but pretty quickly he he started looking around the shady areas from a safe distance. But young young George would run off to 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 peek at what's going on in the alleyways and uh, speculate on the shady characters that he sees. And I don't know that he ever talked to them um, uh, enough to get a realistic version of what their story is. But I bet he imagined. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, you get the sense, especially since his, his last few movies are based on on crime novels. Well, not all of them, but Miami Blues and and, and Big Bounce both are that he's got an interest in that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he probably watched it, watched his crime shows or read his comic books or that sort of stuff and then and then applied it back. But I, I, I think young George was looking around a lot before he fell in with the, the hot rod hooligans. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, I can almost see him like finding kind of the, the urban areas of, of L.A. and just sitting on a park bench across yeah. the street and just yeah. and just watching, taking mental notes. I, I doubt he was the type that was writing, writing stuff down uh, at that right. point because he was only 13 when they when they moved. Yeah. So part of me wonders, though, if how much exposure he got to the movie industry because we really don't know how successful his mother was at yeah. movie, like becoming a writer for the films and so yeah. if she got the occasional job or something i wonder if how much she brought him into that being that that would ask those are the questions i would want to ask him is like yeah what was the success of your mother like was this something <laughs> that was instilled within you from day one when you moved to la yeah and if that's the case like why did you go into political science or economic, like real That's estate exactly and things like that? If you kind of had that love growing in you from the beginning. Well, you kind of wonder if, if mom was, you know, a little frustrated with the way that her career to- turned out and was doing the kind of the parental don't do this sort of thing. You know, exactly. be more be more responsible than I was. And, and he played along with that for a little while, but eventually just couldn't resist. Yeah. Well, and, and and it's one of those things where it's it's like my parents were similar, 
Mm-hmm. Um, neither one of them had a, an arty job growing up. <laughs> so they didn't have, this, this didn't come from their experience, but they always said like, even if you decide to do something that is not monetarily beneficial, like have something to fall back on. Like that yeah. was their big thing. It doesn't matter yeah. what you end up doing. It's just as long as you have something that in the worst of the worst, you can go back to and still make money mm-hmm. and make a living. I could see if, depending on how her how her experience with the film industry worked out, her having that same advice, saying mm-hmm. like, "This is this is a tough business, and it still remains a tough business from the sounds of it, <laughs> uh, especially if you're a female." <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 a fascinating thought experiment. What brought him into the space? Like what, what's the, what's the advice that his mother was giving him growing up? And, and, and then of all things to pick real estate and (laughs) which don't, don't get me wrong. People who do real estate. I mean, my parents were involved in real estate and stuff like that. It's, it's good work. If you're good at selling, I'm not good at selling. Like I can't sell my own writing to save my life. (laughs) (laughs) So my yeah. dad and my brother are both real estate agents. So I, uh, I'm kind of the black sheep for yeah. having no aptitude for that either. So, <laughs> but no, I mean, they do all right. It's, 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 it's good work if they're, uh, it is. Uh, if, if you can do it. So I get that. I don't know what the, uh, the California real estate market is like, but no, <laughs> especially LA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that, Probably that a lot of apartments. These. But, you know, when he made his jump, he did the right thing by, by by hooking up with the Cormans. It's interesting how he kind of fits that trajectory pretty well for yeah. 70s, even the, the, the same 20 auteurs that you were mentioning in the intro. Uh, a lot of them got their start working with with Cormans. Yeah. And so he's definitely along the right, right lanes there. I mean, it's it's clear that he has an aptitude for knowing who to who to hook up with. How to how to sell his work, mm-hmm. how to get those sorts of jobs, which leads to his disappearance after a hot rod to be a little bit more interesting. Like what? What was leading up to that? What was leading up to that? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't remember much about TV films back in the '80s when I was growing mm-hmm. up. I remember that they were stuff that we would watch, but yeah, they weren't anything like the movies you would go see in a theater. Uh, right. They were kind of the lesser. Yeah. So. I've always grown up with the idea that once a director did a TV movie, that mm-hmm. might have been the death knell of, of their career. And so <laughs> uh, they're, they're either stuck doing TV from now on or they just disappear. Yeah. And that seems to be the case. Although, weirdly enough, that's George Armitage comes back and does two of the best films in his filmography. And so yeah, that, that space of 11 years, I, I think there could be a lot of interesting speculation. Right. Right. What was going on? <laughs> when were the Corman like when was the reign of Cormans kind of over? It had to be like early to mid eighties, right? When their when their influence kind of died. died oh, off. I don't I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, uh probably it lessened in yeah. the eighties, um when when drive in was replaced by VHS, you know, and mm-hmm. and kind of Charles Band and Troma kind of took the place yep. of of the the New World movies um, and the Canon Group and the, the, that sort of thing. So I think it's probably when the uh, they were not the only game in town anymore. Mm-hmm. But you know, they're uh, Roger Corman's still popping up in things. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, all through there. In part because you know uh, 
Jonathan Demi wants to put him in Silence of the Lambs or something like that. <laughs> exactly. so he, he keeps popping up in weird places like that. But yeah, that's probably around the time. But he, I mean, it was Demi who who set up um, Miami Blues. That was going to be one of mm-hmm. his movies and, and ended up going to Armitage instead. So even if he's not the only game in town for, for cheapies anymore, his influence is still felt because he nurtured so many great directors and because he had so many in the stable that when somebody reaches, you know, you know, that level like Demi's at mm-hmm. um, was it at the time, he could still pull other Corman people in there. And so yeah. you got to believe during that period, he's still got his connections. He's still working on something comfortable enough to that, that he can kind of take his time because I mean, there's a there's a huge difference in quality between yeah. uh, the, the his between Hot Rod, <laughs> yeah, and or Vigilante Force even, yeah. and Miami Blues. There's for sure he, he's a different director. And boy, watching the credits on on Miami Blues, it's just ringer after ringer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as, yeah, as as on there. it's it's pretty darn impressive. And so you got to believe he spent a lot of that time kind of building up that cred and and, and getting ready to make a, a proper movie. Yeah. Well, and, and you have to think about like the fact that he had been building up this relationship with Demi uh, during that time period, yep. um, which if all reports about Jonathan Demi are, are true, he was probably the sweetest guy alive. Like he was yeah. just really uh, charitable, very like willing to work with people and, and just a, just a sweet guy. Yeah. Um, how, how interesting that, that, of all the people that he could kind of end up befriending, it would be George <laughs> Armitage who yeah, like, and, and part of, part of what makes me think that maybe there is an 11 year discrepancy during those two films is that he, he's, he ended up doing more for Gene Corman than Roger. Corman. Right. Right. And it's because of that, like I, I, you know, the Cormans are the Cormans. So like, you're going to get some, yep. you're going to get work passed to you regardless. And I'm sure he did some writing and some like re- yep. revamping scripts during that time. I doubt he was, you know, twiddling his thumbs. Um, <laughs> back to real estate. <laughs> back to real estate, yeah. I wonder if not being as closely knitted with Roger was was part of the reason why he didn't get picked up as often for you know, kind of heading a, um, a film. But I think I think the one of the pieces that you and I both read uh, came upon a good question is why Demi pushed Miami Blues to mm-hmm. George Armitage. Like, mm-hmm. what in Armitage's past and in their friendship might have led him to believe that this, yeah, this guy can do it and do mm-hmm. a good job of it. And to do something that largely expands his horizons. He's working outside of tropes. He's working out, outside yeah. of cliches. And he was really the first of your kind of 90s crime noir films. Yep. And so yep. he started that whole trend in, in many ways. And, of course, the guy that... that talked about that in his article was a big tarantino hater uh, yeah so so he's just finding every nit to pick Uh, (laughs) so but yeah what what do you think probably drew demi to to armitage i think it's exactly what you talked about before it's he he likes the outsider and we've got a film here where where the principal characters are outsiders playing at something right uh whether i mean hoke is a is a cop, but he's clearly on the outside as far as that goes. He doesn't have the respect and it kind of revels in that with the teeth taking out and all of that. Exactly. Um, and Baldwin and Je- Jennifer Jason Lee's characters are sort of playing at this middle class existence. And then later on, Baldwin's literally playing at being a cop. I mean, there it's it is a movie of outsiders. And yes. so 
And there's a there's a scummy quality to it that works well with the exploitation movies that Armitage uh, did. So as soon as Demi realized he wasn't going to be the one doing this, I, I could see Armitage making a pretty strong pitch uh, yeah. for why he should be the guy. Yeah. Based on all that. What do you think? From what I can gather from all the interviews and things like that is that I could see Armitage being a pretty likable guy in general. Mm-hmm. Someone like a kind of a go with the flow not going to really push back. It sounds like he was not one of those directors that's going to uh, yell at people on set or right. anything like that. So he's going to, he's going to want his script done, but mm-hmm. he's open to uh, other creatives adding something to it. I, I would say he's a, he's, he's someone that will always get it done on time, get it mm-hmm. done on budget. And he's pretty much a sure bet when it comes to a director uh, mm-hmm. that you're going to get your, your money out of the out of the film yep and so i could see jonathan demi if he was really good friends with them seeing those elements playing into it as well he's like we don't you don't really see these kind of movies being made right now mm-hmm. here's your shot to to basically make this into a film you have such and such budget i know you can get it within that budget i know you can get it done on time mm-hmm. and i know you'll do at least a a journeyman quality version of the film, if not yep. a better version and we'll make our money on it. You know, that's really, that's, that's a simple, I would say that's a simple scenario for a producer or, or someone to look at and say, is this going to be profitable? It's yep. going to be profitable. Like it's, it's just, you're not going to have any other, like there's nothing in his past to say that, that this would change. So, yeah, but it also kind of makes you ask the question, like, <laughs> How did, how did Jonathan Demi become the uh, the, <laughs> the great director, uh, and and Armitage gets kind of left in the dust to some extent. And that's I think that's probably just personality. It's probably just uh, yeah. Demi had more tricks in his bag uh, than that's, Armitage does, and so, yeah. which is not to say anything bad of Armitage. It's just not, no, there's different people. So. <laughs> Demi made Silence of the Lambs, and mm-hmm. so <laughs> he's not many people have made a movie like yeah, that. So exactly, exactly. I mean, and you're and you're right about the. I mean, he also made Stop Making Sense, which is one of the all-time great uh, concert movies. Yes. So I don't know that it's quite fair to say why I'm <laughs> judge Jonathan Demi because <laughs> most are not. Yeah, exactly. Not that he doesn't have some stinkers in his in his collection there oh and name a director that doesn't have some stinkers in their in in their catalog it's i would i would question anyone who said that there was a perfect director out there yeah yeah. uh i would say that there are perfect directors who are young that have only done like you know a handful of movies and of course they're all good but just wait it'll come yeah (laughs) you know yeah the the snarky answer there is you know charles lawton it's Mm -hmm. he directed night of the hunter and then that's it so Yeah. it's it's easy yeah, to say he's good. A great good job. <laughs> yeah. you so, get to be the perfect one yeah that's it's almost the exception that proves the rule so, yes exactly yeah. that's exactly right <laughs> anyway yeah i think that's i think that's a, a, a lot of it and i think that's i think that's where i finally come down on armitage is that he's a he's an interesting director um i i you know he's an auteur there's definitely there's definitely his interests and his style that we can see through mm-hmm. there and he made a bunch of good movies and one all-time great movie and one not so good movie, but that was his first movie working with a skeevy's genre. So <laughs> yeah. that's all right. But yeah, that's um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. 
yeah, what are you, what are you going to do? Everybody's got to start someplace. And, mm-hmm. and I, we'll get into this a bit. I appreciate what he's trying to do, yes. um, even if he doesn't pull it off. And so uh, that's finally where I kind of come down on him um, overall. But with, with Gross Point Blank being far and away his most interesting, as yes. we'll get to. As far as layers go. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I think, I think there's, there's an, I would enjoy seeing something come out by him now yeah. just to see if, if he still sticks with the outsiders or, if, and if his style has changed at all, because there are elements of the big bounce that we'll get to that I think <laughs> display a little bit more of a mainstream dream, uh, kind of mentality on yeah. how he wants to approach the, uh, the outsider genre. Yeah. Um, it doesn't quite work. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and part of that might just be the studio. Uh, but part of me thinks that it's partly, you know, just not the best film because apparently he has a, he has a cut of the film that, that he goes around and he uh, shows to people, you know, at certain showings. Really? Yeah. I did not, I did not catch that. Cause he, he hates the, the actual yeah. release. Like he, he cannot stand it. And he says that there's, there's dialogue in there that, that frames the story a lot better. Okay. Uh, that got cut. And so. Um, apparently uh, he, he only does it every so often, but you know, if there's a, if there's ever a chance close by, I may go. Yeah. See we got to find that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it's a, but I just like the fact that he's, he's somewhere between a journeyman director and yeah. just a, I guess, auteur in the, in the uh, prestige, uh, significant like sign of things. Like yeah. he's, he understands film. He understands yeah. what makes plot work what makes characters work and yet he just doesn't see the point of being that prolific in his and in his work and so yeah and he's i think he's more in, in, interested in writing scripts anyways that seems to yeah. be his bag uh, on the whole which is interesting given how many of his movies you know aren't his script yeah, exactly. or, or his story at any rate um which we'll get into later when we get in both of them but yeah that's I wonder. I wonder what it is that that he wants to kind of be more hands off on that level, or if being the director is enough of a enough of controlling the script. Even though that's absolutely not what happened with Gross Point Blank, yeah, where, exactly. Where, uh, Cusack and his guys came in and basically rewrote it um, mm-hmm. off of the bones there. So it'll be interesting to think about that as we as we go through the pieces. As we go through, it, maybe yeah. it's just not a good multitasker. Yeah, that's it's true. Hard for him to write and direct at the same time. I understand. Uh, that. Yeah, same here. Same here. So that that kind of brings us to kind of a general. Unless you have some other points about his uh, about his life, that brings us to kind of the best and worst. I I think it's pretty clear uh, which one both of you and I are going to say are, is his best film. Yeah, uh, it's kind of the reason why we're doing the podcast in the first place. But I want to hear your what you think is the worst film. I have an idea. But <laughs> it is it is private duty nurses. Yes. I think that's his worst movie. Um, we'll get more into it when we actually get into that one. But on the one hand, it's again, it's a first movie working in a, a particular genre. He's 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 got to show the nudity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not I, that's not necessarily my problem with it. It's just for me, it's at odds that it doesn't work. Him yeah. trying to mix together um some some social commentary in with this exploitation um and it doesn't work in a way that i kind of find reprehensible <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah yeah you, you're the, the commentary almost gets buried underneath like the kind of a reversal of everything yeah. 
yeah exactly <laughs> oh sure here's a story about the this uh, black doctor and and the black nurse trying to fight against society oh yeah. here they are nude and getting it off yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah they so. have that very serious conversation and the next cut is then uh, i mean and, and i gotta admit part of it is just style uh I, close-ups of lips which show up in his movies more than <laughs> more than i would expect that's I can handle some gross stuff in movies like yeah. intestines ripping out and, and skin getting ripped off of skulls. All good with that. Yeah. Close ups of people lips kissing. Oh, that, that, yeah. just, that just gets me. So and it happens a lot in that movie, but uh, in his other movies anyway, too. I look so forward that's to my exploring bad. that. What's that? I look forward to exploring that. Fear. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's mostly going to be me. It's going to make for bad podcasts because I'm just going to go over there going, oh, <laughs> making faces. You're going to have to talk about it. Yeah, it's it's gonna be hard to say. Like, it's hard for me to to go against that. I, I think I think I agree that Private Duty Nurses is is easily his worst film. Um, and that's that's with a TV movie uh, in yeah. the mix. Um, and it's it's not so much that I don't find elements of it to be really interesting. It's just that as it feels too like you know how Michael Bay has quick cut action scenes. Yeah, I found myself thinking. This is what sexploitation looks like if Michael Bay had just was <laughs> let loose. Like, quick cut, quick cut, quick cut. And you're just like, oh, wow. They literally just had a conversation and now they're in bed getting it on. And yeah. at one point, you know, you, you literally, the clothes disappear. And you're just yeah. like, yep. and you're just like yep. what is going on? <laughs> so, like, this is, this, is, this is sexploitation from the mind of Michael Bay, in my opinion. Yep. And, That's uh, a really and it, does not make, it does not make uh, for a for a very enthralling experience. So yeah, I, I'm going to have to agree with you on that. So here's um, the other question though. What's leaving gross point blank out. Um, what's, what's your next favorite? I'm going to have to go with Miami blues. Um, okay. I found it really fascinating. Uh, and, and it's, I think it's because it shows Alec Baldwin kind of pre Jack Ryan. Uh, yeah. You know, just this, who he has become in his, his public and his kind of uh, on screen persona this was before that was really set, I think. Yeah. And so it was fascinating to see him play such a fragile masculine character, like just yeah. someone that is so he's so lunatic, but at the same time it, he, he, he yearns for more. He just doesn't know how to get there without, yeah. you know, without violence or without uh, crime. And so he's just, he's always on the verge of just cracking. And yeah. I find that, I, I, I felt like that may have been that may be my favorite Alec Baldwin uh, performance. <laughs> That's just the, the really? levels. Yeah, just the levels that really? he's putting into that. Uh, I I really found it fascinating. I found it to be a fascinating film okay. overall. So uh, what about huh. you? We're, we're going to we're going to differ on that one a little Sweet. bit. Well, Sweet. <laughs> so we'll get there. Uh, um, awesome. So my, my next favorite is uh, is Vigilante Force. Nice. It's, uh, it's it's silly, it's goofy, but it knows what it is, and more so than the other exploitation movies, it it pays off uh, what it's after. You know, it's and and I I think Bernadette Peters' performance is amazing. I've oh, never yeah. seen her in that. In no, oh no, yeah, yeah oh no, okay, you're making yeah, a yeah, yeah, making yeah. a face like oh yeah. we're gonna disagree on that one already. No, no, I think it's more fantastic. of a oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think she's fantastic. I've never seen her in that mode before. Um. Mm-hmm. And, you know, big gunfights, uh, simple pleasures, but it, it totally works for me in a way that the other ones don't. So 
that's that's my next one on this. Sweet. I I don't think we're gonna have much agree or disagreement on that one. So okay, because I I that would be my third uh, easily. Okay. So, okay. Um, we'll save it all for Miami Blues and probably Hot Rod. I think I'm more yeah. up on Hot Rod than you are. But... Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's all for So Gross, Such Point, Much Blank this week. We have been your hosts, Blake Collier and Joe George. Next week, we will be starting our minute-by-minute exploration of Gross Point Blank with minute number one. Remember, this podcast is us breathing. Thank you for listening. If you like what we do, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and a review. Every bit of feedback gives us the ability to expand our audience. Our podcast theme was created by Jans. You can find his music and other projects at thespacecampaign.com. Our podcast intro music was Terra by Chico Korea and Electronic Band. Our podcast outro music was created by Jeff Hansen. Our podcast artwork was created by Jeff Weirich. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash podcast. And you can find Blake on Twitter at Lost in Osmosis and Joe at J.A. George II, spelled I-I. Hey, bing, 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 bang. Popcorn.